You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Okay, this afternoon's reading, but we're in Acts chapter 19, verses 23 to 41. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that God's made by human hands and no gods at all. There is great danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quietened the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from the heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with nothing but with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Thanks, Helen. Um, Let me add my welcome to the rest of the guys, and why don't I um, pray for us, and then we'll jump into this passage as well. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that your word is there to um, cause us to trust in you and to cause us to see the goodness of who you are. Lord, as this passage reminds us and shows us that there are fake gods everywhere, we pray that you'd help us to come to again see the false promises that they give us and how you as the true and real God are the one who gives us life to the fullest. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. 
Let me start with a question for you. How many of you remember the Argos catalogs? It's kind of fun, because I get to see your faces. And everybody under the age of 20 is like, what, what's a catalog? And then everybody else is like, oh, yes, 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 I remember. If you're young, or if you're not from the UK, and if you've only been here recently, you might not get why people are smiling, going, oh, yes, I remember the Argos catalog. Such wonderful book of dreams. Uh, let me explain why people are so fond of the Argos catalog. In 2011, there were London riots, similar to the riots going on right now in France, and shops got smashed all the way through London, and things were stolen. People ran off with goods and took them for themselves. And do you know which was the shop that got looted, robbed from, rioted the most? It wasn't John Lewis, it wasn't Selfridges, it wasn't Harvey Nichols, it wasn't even Debenhams, it was Argos. Why Argos? Because for the average British person, Argos is the shop that has everything. And why do we think Argos is the shop that has everything? Because there is a catalog with 2,000 pages of different things that promise you wonderful goodies that you can take home with you. And this book... Some people have called the book of dreams because back in the day before there was the internet, back in the day before you could make an Amazon wish list of what you wanted for Christmas, browsing through this book, flicking through the pages was the way that you brought up a really good Christmas list. How many of you remember getting a biro and circling all the different things? Yep, I want that one. Turn the page, fold that one over, I'll have that too, and you wrap down the list, and you make this massive list of stuff that you're never going to get because it's just too many things, but you'd spend hours and hours on that. Do you know, people still do that today, even though Argos has stopped doing those catalogs. There's a group of British catalogers who will do this stuff. If you have an old catalog in your home, in the attic or somewhere, the market value for it is 50 quid. You can put it on eBay and earn that much right now. Now... I'm bringing all that up not because I'm assuming that you're going to go look in your back garden or your attic and, and pull out the catalogue, but because we still do the same thing, don't we? You're probably not flicking through a catalogue and really excited about things there, but you're probably flicking through something, and that might become your book of dreams, your place of hope, the place that you look to for some type of meaning. How many of us flick through dating sites looking for something to help ourselves? or flick through job sites looking for something else that might give us meaning, or look through housing websites, and maybe in this current climate, mortgage rates and interest rates to look for some meaning, or maybe even just on this Sunday, you're just thinking, Eric, you're thinking far too, too highbrow for me. I'm just looking for Uber Eats and just what food I'm gonna get when I get home. Um, it, I wanna find some enjoyment there. That's all good, choice is a wonderful thing, but it's really easy, very quickly, to move from choice to that becoming your hope, to that becoming something that draws you away from God. And Acts 19 speaks right into that, telling us that there are so many things, so many things that become, become good things, that can then become God things. And if they do, they'll cause us to run away from God, turn away from him, and worship something that will take everything from us. We've got three points today in this sermon. Point number one, that false gods are everywhere. Point number two, that false gods take everything. And point number three, the true God gave everything. Let's go to point number one, false gods take, uh, sorry, false gods are everywhere. What is a false god? Um, well, you might be tempted to think that a false god is taking drugs, doing something horrible, 
putting a lie in there, being mean, kicking someone in the face. False gods are all of these bad things that we do. Martin Luther, in his large catechism, is really helpful here when he says this. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Let me read that last bit again. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Which means that anything that is good that becomes an ultimate thing, a God thing, that is a God to you, a false God, an idol. So that means then that false gods are everywhere. We can worship anything. Anything can become ultimate. Your supper tonight, the Argos catalog, your hopes and your dreams, they can become ultimate and draw you away from God. And it's really easy to see what our false gods are because if they're challenged by the gospel, just watch us respond with a bit of fury and a bit of anger. That is exactly what you see here in verse 26, isn't it? If you turn to Acts 19, verse 26, you see this happen. Paul has been preaching the gospel in Ephesus for some time, and Demetrius, an idol maker, hears the gospel, and one part of it, one part of it that challenges his false god really offends him. He's not offended by the idea that we're all sinners, and we need to be saved. He's not offended by the idea that Jesus needed to come and die for us and give us life to the fullest. He's not even offended by this God-man rising from the grave. But when it says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all, that is something that offends Demetrius. And so he starts up a riot because it challenges his God, his idol-making, his economic hopes. And so he wants to fight back and so he causes great damage in the city. In fact, this kind of points back to throughout the Old Testament. You see this idea that people worship fake gods and that they're everywhere. In Isaiah 44, verses 14 to 17, there's this picture of a man who is worshiping a piece of wood. Half of it he takes to make firewood, and the other half he uses to carve out an idol that he bows down to and goes, you are my God, let me praise you and bow down to you. And it's a funny passage because Isaiah is almost sarcastically mocking that silliness of what a silly thing to do, to have a fake God where half of the stuff that is man made you use to warm yourself up and then the other half you're saying is God. What, what, what is wrong with you? Why, why would you think like that? It's there all the way through the Old Testament. But friends, there's a danger here. We can go silly olden people. You think that fake gods are everywhere. You worship fake gods all the time. We in modern Manchester are a bit more progressed. We've had 200 years to think about this stuff and we know a bit better. Um, we've got science, we've got technology. If we showed an Ephesian iPhone, it'd blow their minds. We've developed democracy, we've thought about things carefully, our kids are taught to think critically. We don't have fake gods. I mean, if I'm being honest with you, Eric, we don't really see in Piccadilly Gardens the god of coffee and the god of good traffic, we're not doing this. We're not worshiping and bowing down before things. But friends, we've just said that actually anything that is an ultimate thing becomes a fake God and takes from you, which means it's wonderful that we've got all of this progress technologically, scientifically, health-wise, economically. Things are much better than they were back then. But spiritually, things may well be even darker now than they were back then. Because back then, all of these fake gods and idols were clearly there. They were public. Look around and you can see people worshipping them and putting themselves towards those gods. What's happened now in modern Manchester? 
we still worship fake gods. It's just they're buried, they're hidden, which just means that our worship has gone from being public to being private and subtle. We can still worship things today. The theologian, Sri Lankan theologian, Vinoth Ramakandra, helps paint this picture really clearly for us when he says this. Imagine a 20-pound note. What gives it value? Is it the fact that it's made of paper and it's got some printing on it? Of course not. It's a collective decision by human beings to give this piece of paper, this note, 20 pounds value. Point being, it's human beings who value it that much. Now let's follow what happens to money. After time, you forget that we humans have given this value, and now money begins to define us. It begins to recreate us in its own image. This happens, right? For so many of us, our worth is defined by how much we earn, the capital we have. Whole human societies are assessed as developed or undeveloped on the basis of how much capital, how much money that nation has at a particular moment in history. Instead of men and women controlling money, money now controls men and women. It dictates to us where we should live, what jobs we should do, how many children we should have, with whom we should mix and with whom we shouldn't mix, it reaches into every nook and cranny of public and private life. When men and women fall under the spell of money and cease to question its tyrannical hold on all thinking, they have become possessed by an idol that God Jesus refers to as mammon. Do you see how something that we think is a great idea, it is a good idea, and have invented and created very quickly ensnares us, grabs us, and holds us, and tangles us, and before we know it, it is shaping us, becoming our God, and making and impacting us, and making us become something that we never thought we would want to in the first place. Friends, fake gods are everywhere. But let's go to point number two. Fake gods take everything. Look back with me at verse 35, and what we get is the city clerk questioning the riot that's happening and the mob. And it's a bit of a funny bit, isn't it? Because usually in Acts, a section in the Bible like this is finished with Peter or Paul giving an address to the people, spelling out the gospel, helping us delight in God. But here, it, it, it reads like the city clerk is just going, calm down, would you please? Otherwise, we're going to get told off by the Romans. I mean, it feels a little bit like your housemate who's just like, can you just turn it down a little bit? Otherwise, the neighbors are going to be annoyed. But take a moment here. Luke writes this. And Luke is the same person who wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and he sticks bits in there for us to learn something, to show us something about God. Why has he put the city clerk in this section here? Who's the clerk talking to? Is he saying to Paul and the people who are preaching the gospel, you're the problem, calm down, stop it? No, no, no. He's turning to the people who are rioting, the people who are falsely worshiping false gods, who are causing a ruckus, and he's going, you need to calm down. Otherwise, them Romans are going to destroy us. You are going to bring destruction to us. You who are saying these other people are the problem, they're not. You're the ones who are doing something crazy, and you're the ones who are going to get us in trouble. Stop it. Meaning that those people who were worshiping idols who thought that they were protecting their economy, who thought that they were protecting their heritage, who thought that they were fighting against the gospel and something bad, were bringing destruction upon themselves. 
They worshiped false gods and idols, and those idols told them lies, twisted them, and to an extent took everything from them. We see this happen throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament too. There's the picture of how money is the God for Demetrius and draws him away from wanting to worship something that should be worshiped. We can see how the mob here are reacting and shouting in verses 32 and 34. Do you notice that? It's not normal, is it? They shout for two hours about how great their God is. That's, that's an in, incredible devotion to it. Why? Because of the economic benefit for them? Because of the heritage and, and the pride that they have in their city, which seems developed? Because maybe for some of them, they enjoyed the benefits of what was going on there and maybe even the prostitutes that were there in that idol worship that was there. Maybe. Maybe all three. There were different gods that were ensnaring them. And what about the clerk? Why is he saying all these different things here? Is he hoping that this will give him political gain, some money and some power? What you see in this whole section is three different people, Demetrius, the mob, and the clerk. And all of them show us those common false gods, don't they? Money, sex, and power. Those things that ensnare us and draw us away from God. Now I'm aware at this point, some of you have heard a sermon, maybe numerous sermons about idolatry, about false gods and about how they're different. And we all know the typical ones. Yes, yes, Eric, I've heard about money. I've heard about its danger. I've heard about sex and about its danger. I've heard about power and about how that's dangerous as well. But we've just said that false gods are everywhere. They're in our city. They're actually in our homes. They're actually in this church as well. And they can draw us away from God. Think about the dangerous, more subtle gods that we sometimes worship instead. So one example is something as, as, as just neutral and as unscary as sport. Some of us love the idea of winning. Some of us love football, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, just an hour ago, I was chatting to Johnny, who was telling me, he was like, um, my, my old professor would tell me that actually he had to book days off when Everton was playing because he'd be grumpy towards his, his patients afterwards. So he, he, he learned that actually as a doctor, he would not try to care for people on the days when Everton were playing in case he was just not doing a really good job. I mean, that's kind of a bit, bit, bit crazy, isn't it? it's something neutral that really takes you. Now, you could laugh at that story, but actually, this is the same God that impacts our city. Do you know that the Behavioral Institute tells us that this is a group of seven people that used to be in the government and now are working worldwide to study different things. It tells us that, unfortunately, domestic violence in the UK surges during football competitions like the World Cup and the European Championships. When England loses they estimate that there is at least 25 to 50% more domestic violence in homes. Meaning that when our nation's football team loses, some people respond in such a terrible way because that God of winning and success eats at them that our community's homes are in great danger and in great damage. Something as neutral as football can become a God that will take everything for you. Now, I know some of you aren't big into football, so maybe you're like, that's not a problem for me. That's not a God. That's not something that's going to affect us. That's other people over there. But what's the big God in Manchester? The one that seems to eat everybody here in modern Manchester. There's a God called self-individualism, or if you want to use a more cool and everyday hip term, that you-do-you thing. 
that, you know, self-expression, you be happy, you just, you know, yay, I can't believe I said that word, yeah, you do you. You, you, you know, you focus on being happy and expressing yourself, which again is a good thing to a certain degree, but if it's made into an ultimate thing, it will make you self-involved and destroy you and make you lonely. Listen to what Sadia Khan, a non-Christian psychologist said. She was asked, why are people more lonely than ever? Why are there more and more people with relationship breakdowns? Why is it most recently there are more and more divorces happening? This is what she says. It's because of distractions. Distractions, distractions, they are everywhere. There are alternatives to everything. Even if you want a meal, there are 50 alternatives on Uber Eat. If you want to go out and eat, there are 50 places you can go. If you want to watch something, there are 50 alternative shows on Netflix. There are so many alternatives to every aspect of life. All this choice makes it almost impossible to invest in one thing or one person. Everybody and everything becomes disposable. So what is happening in relationships is that in the past, if your partner came home tired and stressed, maybe you'd pick up on it. But now you're busy on your phone. Maybe in the past you would have watched a show that you didn't care about, but the other person did and you'd do it together, but now you've got different devices and you can watch whatever you want. We have so much choice that we no longer have the patience to invest into other people's emotional needs. We are so hedonistic as a society that our emotional needs come first. We're being taught this by society more and more. The culture screams, put yourself first, self-esteem, self-assurance, our emotional needs need to come first because the word self is programmed into our psyche. We no longer get happiness from someone else's happiness. Happiness is now a selfish pursuit. You see how that God that seems so wonderful, express yourself, do whatever makes you happy, will actually eat you away. It will tear you away from good relationships. It will tear you away from caring from other people. And when that happens, Eventually, you find yourself sad and all alone. Last one, as an example. I know up until that point, you're like, yes, yes, Eric, but we've heard that story of idolatry. We know that we need to be careful about this stuff. That might be in the air in Manchester, but it's not in our church. We hear the gospel every week. We repent. We try to follow God. Well, friends, actually, can I push back on that and say, if you think that's true, you're being incredibly naive. It's in our church, too. There's a group called the Barna Group, which is the gold standard of Christian statistics and surveys. And in 2017, they surveyed Christians and asked them a bunch of things about their different thoughts. And the Barna Group found that 66% of church-going Christians say that enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. Let me say that again. They asked Christians who go to church on a week-on-week basis, and 66% of those people said, the biggest goal in life is enjoying yourself. Not worshiping God, not bringing glory to God's name, being happy in the moment, which is why so many of us struggle, because we say, Lord, I love you more than anything else, but when you're really pushed at it, it's really going, I want the stuff that makes me feel comfortable. I want the stuff that makes me feel happy. And in a big church like ours, where lots and lots of people are moving through, I think the God and the way that this looks for us is the idol of community, of the idea that we can be home, 
that we can find somewhere where we belong, where everyone will love us, where everything will be nice, where we'll get along really, really well. Hear me again, I am not saying community is a bad thing, but if it becomes a God thing, an ultimate thing, it will destroy you, it will take everything from you, and it will eat you. Let me read to you what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He is a famous theologian who decided to um, resist Nazi rule and went back from New York to, 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 to Nazi Germany, and it cost him his life as he preached the gospel. He says this. Those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. It is not how it should be. It's not we who build, build. Christ builds the church. So the challenge is do what is given to you and do it well, and you will have done enough. Live together in the forgiveness of your sins and forgive each other each day from the bottom of your hearts. Do you see the challenge that's there? If we go to church going, I want a community that will make me happy. This church family is meant to be loving and kind and wonderful, and it's not meeting my needs in the way that I want. Hear me, that might be a legitimate thing to be crying out for, but if you are hoping that this group of sinners who are just as broken as you and need Christ just as much as you are gonna fix everything that you want, you are going to be disappointed because we are all broken and we are not perfect and we are not the greatest friends that you can ever hope for. Christ is your truest friend. And this group of people are the people that Christ has chosen to die for. And this group of people are the people that Christ calls you to invest in and get to know. And you know how we invest in each other? By forgiving each other every day, which means we're gonna disappoint each other every single day. This community is not here to make you happy. It is here to make you dependent on God more and more and point towards Jesus and for us to say, he is more worthy than anything else and he is my greatest friend. He is the truest one who has given me life to the fullest, which is hard, right? That requires us to be vulnerable. That requires us to admit when we've got things wrong. That requires us to put the effort into forgiving one another. That also requires us to repent when we hope that other people will fix our lives when the only one who can is God. Those two things, repentance and forgiveness, are just tiring, aren't they? They're hard work. But it's what we've been called to do again and again and again. And the other option, if you don't do that, is to just do what we talked about at the beginning, not to invest in community, but just to keep flicking through the Argos catalogue, keep flicking through other opportunities, keep flicking through other churches, keep flicking through different people that you are looking at, hoping that somebody will fit everything that you want. There might not be the perfect mentor that you've always looked for. There might not be the wonderful situation that you've always wanted, but there is a community that wants you to lean on and look towards Christ. All of us have needs, and they're fully met in Christ. And in the meantime, we are called to stumble together to love each other, and to forgive each other. We are gonna get things wrong, but to do that so that we might, to a world that needs to see the right God, point towards him together. False gods are everywhere, and false gods, if we let them, will take everything from us. Final point. The true God 
gave everything. Do you see in verses 30 to 31 that Paul wanted to engage with this community and wanted to help, even though this group were rioting and causing huge, huge problems? And actually, it's the people who go, Paul, you better stay, otherwise they're going to rip you to shreds. I didn't say that exact thing, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something similar to that that you'll see in the Bible there. What that shows us is just how difficult this is, isn't it? When someone calls out your false god, it's enslaving, and it's painful, it's difficult. In fact, we've just talked about it. The idea of them repenting and trusting in God, the idea of forgiving each other and working together that's hard. It's more tempting, actually, to just go, I think God is punishing me. I'm just going to go over here. It's more easier sometimes to just go, I've, I've sinned already. Let me just be fully self-destructive and really go for this. It's more easier sometimes to just go, I, I, I should repent and turn towards God, but I'll just sit here and sulk for a little bit. Sometimes that just feels easier, doesn't it? And more, more helpful, not in the moment not in the logic of the pure light of day, but that's what many of us say. That's what many of us find that we do. And then what happens in that time is that we spiral further and further away from God. The idea of repentance becomes harder and harder and harder until we find ourselves in this deep, dark spiral where we're like, I I don't think God would want anything to do with me. I don't think I can reach out to God now. He He wouldn't want anything to me. He's not gonna hear me now, is he? Surely. Let me steal from Matt here, because on Tuesday, he made a wonderful point in in devotions. Um, He was uh, reading Jonah chapter two, and it's the bit where Jonah is swallowed by a fish, and he's crying out to God. And he made this point. When Jonah is swallowed by the fish, it is something that is deep and dark and horrible. Don't think Finding Nemo or The Little Mermaid, this isn't a colorful wee sort of thing. This is the depths of the sea which is the most God-forsaken place in ancient Near Eastern thought, the place where God isn't, the darkest, scariest, gloomiest place. And the fish, don't think Nemo, don't think a colorful, wonderful thing. Think a scary sea monster beast. Think scales and sharp teeth, the type that would cause a dinosaur, a megalodon, or a shark, or something like that to swim away Jonah, because he has rebelled against God, because he didn't want to reach out to a group of people, because he wanted his superiority and, frankly, a bit of racism in himself. He wanted to be better. He thought he was better. That was his idol. Drew him away from God, made him fall into the sea, and he is swallowed by a beast monster. And there he is at depth's door, aware of his sin, aware of how he rejected God, aware of how he is probably at this point going to die and he is in a pattern of sin, rejecting God. And what does he do? He calls out towards God in verses two and verse seven, knowing probably that this is the end for him, that he has done so much to reject God. He calls out to him and God responds. And do you know what's wonderful? We know what Jonah didn't. Jesus went through great darkness and isolation, and he was at death's door for our sake. How did he do that? He went to the cross and he died for us so we can have life to the fullest. God the Father can adopt us and bring us in as children to enjoy him forever because he gave up his only son for us. Jesus won the day for us by giving himself to death for our freedom and to free us from false gods. The Holy Spirit can seal our hearts and we can be his forever 
because of how he has empowered Jesus to raise from the grave. Luke writes both Acts 19 and Luke 23. In Acts 19, Paul is almost destroyed by a mob that is furious at him for calling out their false gods. In Luke 23, Jesus is tortured and killed by a mob of people calling him out because he has exposed their false gods. And he does it so that we can be with him forever. Now, I know that that's a wonderful thing for us to think about, but I also want to be honest with you, City Church. When we think about this, when we hear the gospel, our hearts are enlivened to go, yes, God, you're so wonderful. I want to follow you. But we have just said that false gods are everywhere, which means that tonight when you go home, perhaps even as you leave this room, you'll be tempted to worship something else and be drawn towards him. Tonight I'm going to go home. I'm going to give my wife a kiss on the cheek and I'm going to look at all of my kids and kiss each one of them. And when I do that, I'm going to be tempted to think, you're so little. Let me protect you from the world that's around you. Oh, hang on a minute. Are you a little mini god towards me? And the solution right there, what is the solution? If you are tempted to make a false god out of something, it's certainly not for me to go, oh, my little baby. Um, staff team, could you pray that I love my kids less? That'd be a bit weird, wouldn't it? Like if, if that was what I was doing. Yeah, you're a false god. You're a little idol. Pray that I'd love them less. If I, if I say that, please don't listen to my sermons because that would be highly concerning. So, so what is the solution? Not for us to love those idols, less for us to love God more. That sounds wonderful and easy, but I mean, again, let's just be realistic about this. What, what, how, how do we do that? Do we just get a contact card and go, please pray that I would love God more. Done. Look, it's not so simple, is it? So, so how do we go about this? Well, we remind ourselves of what God has done for us. We remind ourselves of how he loves us. We remind ourselves of that sacrifice of what he did. Do you notice that I'm saying something very similar to what Ralph said last week? We pray, we go through spiritual disciplines. Again and again, we remind our hearts and our souls of God's goodness. And as we do that, we find ourselves melted to want to follow God more and more. You need to see that Jesus broke himself for you, and you need to remind yourself of that constantly. Do you know that when you are tempted to not repent, when you are tempted to continue spiraling, when you're continue, tempted to believe the lies of a false god and stick with it, Jesus is never the limiting factor in that relationship. At any point, you can repent. At any point, you can be with him again. At any point, you can have life to the fullest. Even if you are in the most darkest, horrible situation, God is not far from you. Why? Because even if you were swallowed by the belly of a beast in a deep, dark, God-forsaken area, Christ has died for you, which means that at any moment, if you repent, if you just admit that you've got things wrong and try and turn towards him, try to forgive others, try to love others and lean on God in what he's done, you can enjoy life to the fullest right now. And you can start worshiping the God who has given you everything already now. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you do not tell us false lies. You do not tell us that things are easy and that actually all we need to do is just smile and follow you. You have been honest and told us that actually this world is full of different things that will lie to us 
full of different things that will ensnare us, full of different things that will take everything from us. But Father, we thank you that we are not dead in our sin and lost forever. That is the state that we should be in. Because of what Jesus has done, he has already given us everything. We can have life to the fullest right now today. Lord, if it's the hundredth time or the first time, we pray that you'd help us to repent, to trust in you again, and to ask you to help us us prioritize you above everything else. Whatever other things we put our hope in, Lord, would you help us to live for you and you alone? We pray this in your son's name.